This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm Bob Asman, your host. Glad to have you back listening. I think, uh, as I always say, we have a really interesting guest today to talk about digital customer experience strategy, and his name is Joe Wheeler. Joe is joining us. Welcome, Joe. I appreciate you joining the podcast. Please take a moment, if you would, to introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey, thanks, Bob. A pleasure to be here. Uh, Joe Wheeler, I'm the CEO of CX Digital, a subsidiary of a company I founded with some Harvard Business School professors, Bob, that you're familiar with called the Service Profit Chain Institute. Absolutely. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, too, in the podcast. I have a long list of things to talk to Joe today, so uh, we'll we'll keep it rolling. Joe, I, I always ask my guests the same question, and that is, rarely does anybody wake up when they're young or, you know, and and say, hey, I want to be a digital expert or I want to be in customer experience. They might say I want to be a, a fireman or a doctor or something like that, but rarely does that happen. And so our listeners love to hear the career path that that led you into this field and the success you've realized. Oh, well, thanks, Bob. Well, you know, it's interesting. I always think that people that grew up in family businesses have this notion of service under their fingernails. And so I was no exception. I grew up in a family business, you know, from about the age of 12. I actually thought my name was coffee or tea because it was a big catering business. Um, and so it's all <laughs> sort of in your DNA. At the same time, what really drove me to focus, especially around technology, was uh, years ago I had a role at Hewlett Packard and we were implementing manufacturing systems, Bob. And it was just obvious sort of the challenges these companies faced uh, with the culture change required to embrace technology. And that's when I really realized that what I really wanted to do is become a student about how how customer experiences can be designed, but especially ones that leverage technology. And um, that's when I ended up at the Forum Corporation, where I worked for 17 years. Uh, John Humphrey, their founder, just passed away this past March. Um, he was a great mentor of mine. And then, Bob, as you know, in 2002, Sean Smith and I wrote Managing the Customer Experience, you know, honestly, I don't know if Sean and I really appreciated how successful that book would be. I mean, we <laughs> sold, Pearson sold tons of copies. They're not even clear about how many actually are in, in production. But um, that really was um, a seminal moment because we just got so much interest because we talked about things that we take for granted today, like journey mapping and things like that for the first time. And so that led to me um, working with Jim Heskett and Earl Sasser. Uh, and Len Schlesinger at the Harvard Business School to start the Service Profit Chain Institute in 2005. And uh, that's when I wrote the ownership quotient with Jim and Earl. And then this past uh, 12 months, um, noticed, <laughs> hard to miss, right, Bob? <laughs> the <impact laughs> of COVID-19 and companies that either did or didn't have their digital act together decided to write uh, the digital first customer experience. Oh, the timing couldn't be better on that, Joe, for sure. We'll, and we'll get into that. Um 
So a couple of thoughts on, thank you for sharing your background. One is, it's interesting you talk about family businesses, uh, and that's why I ask guests to share that career path, because uh, totally unscientific, but you, I hear this quite often, that it, the service got in my DNA early because I had a family business, or um, parents were in type of some type of service-oriented business, and uh, really that's what we're looking for in our organizations, right? Is getting that into our DNA and not having it be a, a program of the month, but it's part of our DNA. So I find that very interesting in your background. Yeah. And Bob, honestly, you know, my, my good friend, Gene Bliss kindly um, wrote the foreword for this book, which I was so appreciative of. And, you know, she grew up, her father had a shoe business as you know, right. <laughs> and um, so I do think there's something to this, but maybe you and I could launch a study. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think get it would be Yeah, get some real data, right? Not qualitative. Um, and then I, I also want to talk to you for a minute about the Service uh, Profit um, Institute because um, what I find fascinating about the Service Profit Chain is I revisited. I'm, I'm an uh, adjunct instructor, and I revisited it recently for one of my courses, and. What just fascinates me about some of these early works in the area of service profit in the area of customer experience have withstood the test of time, very much like your early book. And I think that's fascinating that that must go to the true nature of what you discovered and uncovered in researching this. I'm just curious, Joe, if you feel the same way in terms of it withstanding the test of time. Oh, absolutely, Bob. And, you know, honestly, full credit to Lynn Schlesinger and Jim Heskett and, uh, and Earl Sasser and, and uh, Tom Jones, I should also add, and uh, Gary Lovin, who, you know, were co-authors on the original article. I mean, it makes sense, right? This notion of linking employees, customers, and, and profits um, to drive longer-term outcomes is intuitive. But the power of the service profit chain over the years has been that detail it provides. I mean, isn't it interesting that one of the case studies in my book is Starbucks, you know, and Bob, as you know, they had a bit of a bum, right? They they kind of miscalculated, you know, publicly uh, acknowledged the the change in demand and versus capacity and their frontline staff, you know, really has struggled keeping up with mobile orders and the mix in product from hot to cold beverages. But the truth is, when you read that chapter, I, I kind of talk you through what their their um, re- reinvention plan is, right? That Howard Schultz came back to to launch. And one of those things they call the Thrive Initiative. And if you look at that model, it looks a lot like the service profit chain. So, I mean, this notion of understanding, you know, Bob, very quickly, I years ago, I wrote an article on LinkedIn that got more views than any other views of any of my articles. And the title of it was... Um, uh, kind of the myth around how we design customer experiences. And the answer is, it's not just about the customer, right? It's about the employees, the customers, and the shareholders. And great experiences meet the needs of all those stakeholders. So true. I I, I did a similar um, revisit of a book um, that Don Peppers and Martha Rogers wrote on one-to-one marketing. And again, over 20 years in it, and it still is very applicable to what we're talking about in customer experience these days. Um, so Joe, I, I want to talk about the book uh, because it it's very timely. You, you seem to know exactly how to time books <laughs> that are appropriate for what's happening in the market, which is what I love. But 
Can you, might be a simple question, but help us define digital. And the reason I ask that question is I'm beginning to find that digital is getting a whole bunch of different definitions. You can ask six people in an organization across different organizations, what is the meaning of digital? And you might get six different answers. From your perspective and your research, um, help us understand what you mean by digital. Yeah, thank you for asking that, Bob. And, you know, you're familiar. I'm writing this um, nine-article nine series on LinkedIn with digital first provocative questions. And the last one, spoiler alert, is uh, the question is, when we say digital first, do we mean people second? And of course, the answer is no, you know, especially coming out of the mouth uh, of the of the person who's the director of the Service Profit State Institute, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, it's funny, Bob. So we would do consulting on the West Coast and the East Coast. And um, I remember sitting in the former CEO of PayPal's office, a wonderful guy, Rajat Dutta, and I was waiting to meet him for the first time. And uh, and on in his office was this letter of congratulations. I forget it was from that said, "Hey, congratulations, congratulations on your 140th millionth customer." And I sat there thinking, you know, who has 140 million customers? <laughs> you know, maybe a bank in China. You know, with like just and I thought, and and you noticed the difference. Companies out west, especially in the valley, just thought about. Um, their business is differently. And a colleague of mine said, yeah, Joe, it's because they thought digital first. And so when we say digital first, Bob, we don't mean people second. We mean the idea that says, especially today, as as AI and machine learning has reached a whole new level of maturity, the truth is where customers will intersect with you will probably be digital. You know, that'll be the first place, the way they connect. So the way we define digital first is like this. We see, see it as you know, the delivery of a digital first experience that exceeds expectations on those attributes, which most influence customer loyalty while leveraging value over cost. And I realize that sounds a bit like consulting speak, um, but there, each one of those elements is important because number one, as I said, not only is digital first tending to uh, be the first way a customer will intersect with your brand, it's also just being influenced by competition, by culture, by the convergence of technologies, as we're all seeing. Exceeding expectations still hasn't changed. You know, I know for sure from all of our work, Bob, that there are four to five loyalty drivers in any customer segment that if you can identify them and then understand the touch points that influence the most and consistently exceed those, um, you will be rewarded with more loyalty. And then um, finally, you know, at the end of the day, Richard Whiteley, the late Richard Whiteley <laughs> taught me this, the most insult you can have on a customer is to go out of business. <laughs> so we always have to remember the goal here, right, is that make every dollar of operating expense return incremental financial benefits to all those three st- stakeholders and try to produce a whole greater than the sum of its parts. So, Bob, what do you think my definition is a work? That works for me. I think it really encompasses all the various components. And I think that's one of the challenges we're having, Joe, with digital is what are all the components of it? And and I think your definition does a nice job of, of encompassing those. Um, so tell me this, Joe, why is it that we have companies that are still taking their website and throwing it on an app and calling it a mobile app? Um why do we have organizations that are um, just not getting up to speed on digital, even though 
Um, we've, you know, been on the internet 30, 40 years, something like that. What, what's your perspective on what's the barrier? What are the challenges? What's happening there where companies aren't coming up to speed quickly on digital? Well, and, and of course, I'm setting aside AI and so forth. I'm just saying kind of your basic digital engagement with the customer because the customer demands it, as you so happily said. Yeah. Well, three three quick comments about that, Bob. One is, you know, there's an old saying in the product development business uh, to don't fall in love with your solution, fall in love with the problem. <laughs> and, and I think in a world where, like in the first introduction, I talk about digital promise apparel, and I feature Zoom Pizza, which I think was a terrific idea. Um, and, you know, they raised like almost $400 million in investment uh, to scale that. But, you know, I think it lasted about 22 months. And, and, you know, you realize, you know, Domino's did a pretty good job. Like in 30 minutes, I could get a pizza and I kind of love their experience. You know, I'd like to know that, you know, the the, the delivery person was going to show up when he did with that pizza tracker. So long story short, one problem I see is, you know, companies fall in love oh, wow. with a technology. And boy, that's even more prevalent now with the excitement around uh, generative AI. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The second one is they they focus. It's not that they focus on that. They're not focusing on problems. They're just not. They're, they're looking at the squeaky wheel and not really the bigger things that customers want solved. So they react to things and actually create um, lots of improvements. Well, I'll give you an example. I was working with a company in Toronto, Bob, and, and uh, we were designing their customer experience and building their balance scorecard. And the head of um, of operations, fellow George, reported to the CEO in the meeting. He said, listen, I'm delighted to share that we reduced the average speed of answer from 10 seconds to five seconds. So the CEO says, really? So he picks up the phone. He calls her 1-800. Sure enough, five seconds later, someone answers the phone, very polite. John thanks him and hangs up. And he goes, George, what did that cost? George says, $950,000. There's this silence in the room. And the CEO says, you know what, George? I'd have waited another five seconds. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Here's the thing. This sort of stuff happens all the time. Now, maybe George had George had like a, a deep tree diagram that they needed to deliver in five seconds. I don't think so. At the end of the day, the second problem people have is they don't solve the problems that really matter to customers, employees, and customers because they don't do enough robust research. And then the third thing that I think gets things these things off track is and I don't mean to be, but, you know, sometimes when we work with clients and I say, so how have you embraced rapid experimentation and agile methodologies? And mm-hmm. they'll say, oh, yeah, we hired a guy. We hired a guy from Toyota or we hired a person from Amazon who's who's leading the, the agile um, process. And then you go and try to find those people. and You can't find them. They're like off into some cubicle in a satellite office. So. You have to actually do Agile, Bob. You can't just buy the book. <laughs> you actually have to use rapid experimentation methods, not just read about it from per- someone like me. And that is the third thing, is the stage gate kind of top down. We really haven't lost that. And I think when when organizations don't embrace this notion of test and learn and rapid experimentation, um, it's problematic. Long-winded answer. Apologize for that. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Um Let's talk. Let's talk about a little bit about this answer too. Um, one of the uh, chords that you struck with me is falling in love with technology. I I worked uh, at a company that sold customer experience technology, and what would often happen is customers would come to us and they'd say, uh, um, "I need to buy a new technology." We'd say, "Why?" And they'd say, "Well, I have to improve my customer experience." And we'd say, "Well, what is the customer experience you're trying to improve?" And there would be silence in the room. 
And it was an unknown problem, but the solution was technology. And to your point, uh, let's find out what the core problem really is before we go about um, fixing it. So I think you really hit something there that I see a lot um, with organizations. And the second, go ahead, Joe. Well, just, I was just going to quickly say, to be fair, there's so much pressure in companies around performance, especially publicly traded companies. You know, you can understand why people, you know, they don't want to sit on their hands. They want to take action. We had a client who we did a qualitative study to look at, uh, did a detractor analysis. And the results proved that price was really important. Well, the CEO was gung-ho to almost start a price war to go after it. And I convinced him just, you know, let's pause until we get the quantitative research. And in truth, 1,700 responses proved that when they got the first three attributes wrong, price did become important, but it was fifth on the list. Mm. So, you know, it's one of these things where I understand how people want to take action. At the same time, patience tends to uh, reward um, longer term success, I think. Anyway, Bob, sorry to interrupt you. So, so Joe, do you see that organizations are kind of on either end of a spectrum? So you've got those that want to, you know, get information and want to take immediate action, even though it might be mis- somewhat misguided. And on the other end of the spectrum is collecting a lot of data and not doing anything with it. I mean, is there that difference in organizations that you see? Um, well, I think, great question. So you're heading towards an important topic. I, I did a LinkedIn post you read, Bob, like, which was, do we really have to ask customers if they're happy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um because in a digital first world, you know, we have a lot more breadcrumbs, you know, even in a cookie-less world in the future, we'll, we'll have more data around customers' behaviors. So I do think there's a data gap. And I think that's closing fast with with, with technologies you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, I do At the second time, I, I think the thing that is most interesting to me is, you know, six or seven years ago, uh, you could launch, a you know, even a global initiative around CX and kind of manage stakeholder expectations. Today, with the level of technology, this is more challenging. Like one of the examples in the book, Bob, is Semex, and they have won awards uh, for their digital transformation efforts called Semex Go. Uh, the more important attribution they get, though, is from their customers who have just adopted Semex Go like remarkably. And, and they did three things. They did a lot of things, but three things that really stand out. One was they took their whole executive team for a week and took them to MIT and trained them just on digital technology, blockchain, immersive experiences, um, you know, just really got them understanding AI, machine learning, where this was headed, right? That's the big investment, but it had a big impact when they were rolling Semex out globally because these executives didn't have a 40-minute overview of the project. They had five days at MIT to understand this was changing their business model. It wasn't a digitization initiative. It was going to change how Semex served their customers and, and deliver products and services. That was a big thing. The second thing they did was the executive, um, full, like the executive support for this was just, and you hear this all the time from, from people that do this work, Bob, and you know it yourself. Uh, it was way beyond commitment. It's much more involved. So the CEO personally went and visited the scrum teams, asked what they needed, what was getting in the way. So he re- they really um, supported it from the top down. And number three, they did a very big thing, Bob. They organized the design team, the UX team, the data science team, uh, the IT team, all under the same leader. I don't see that too often in organizations. They basically, instead of trying to cut through the silos, they just put every together uh, together under one leader and the impact it had in speed. Now, it still took them two years to get done, 
But I tell you, if they hadn't done that, I'm curious as to how long it might have taken. And that, to me, was a best practice. And uh, by the way, listeners, Joe was kind enough to send um, that excerpt to me from the book to read through it. And I would add, Joe, that one of the things that was impactful to me in reading that was it. And and you just noted this with the organizational structure. This was end to end. This Mm -hmm. wasn't just a, you know, an operations functional initiative or a marketing initiative. This was end to end. And and that was really what impressed me about this success story. Well, and talk about <laughs> talk about luck. Well, I don't know if it was luck or not, but they, you know, they brought Semex go to market um, just you know, before, like this was uh, happening in the U.S. and and starting sale globally as COVID hit. So, you know, talk about a business that required um, touchless experience. And so um, they're the first ones to say, hey, we were, you know, we were kind of lucky to get this in place um, before COVID really started because it did help their business dramatically. But, you know, there, it's another great example of the design of San Francisco didn't just serve customers. It also served uh, their drivers. And if um, if anyone listening to this podcast grew up in the construction industry, my father had a construction business part time because he didn't have enough to do running a banquet hall. Um <laughs> Uh, knows driving a cement truck is or a ready mix truck is a really tough job and uh, they focus the driver experience for semex um just improved dramatically with semex go they now knew exactly where to go there was there was no mystery about w- when the delivery would be if there was a change in it they were uh, notified safely in real time there's lots of regulatory requirements around driving a cement truck as you would imagine um semex go just help with those because you can't almost like pilots bob you can't have have drivers uh, more than X number of shifts in certain geographies. So this was a way for them to understand how to manage to that. Um, just, you know, check the boxes of things that they did well around this. Now, they'll be the first to say that it wasn't perfect. In fact, um, the head of digital said to me at one point, <laughs> you'll like this, Bob, they hired a, a, a technology firm, obviously, to help them with a lot of these things. And uh, they taught them this idea of a minimal viable product. And he said, we did this for a few months doing these prototypes with our customers. And I realized it just wasn't our brand. So we renamed them minimal lovable experiences because, you know, we weren't trying to do the minimum. We wanted to exceed expectations on those on those key touch points. And uh, he, he said, you know, it made all the difference. And of course, tying the brand in, right? That's so important as well. Yes. Well, I mean, readers that do decide to buy, buy the book, I mean, I hope they... Uh, they enjoy the ch- chapter, especially on Nike. And, and the reason why I chose Nike, Nike as the example of designing immersive experiences isn't just how impressive they are in terms of personalizing both physical, digital, and human experiences, uh, especially when you visit like the House of Innovation in New York or one of the other locations. Um, it's how it's connected to their brand voice. I mean, their mission and brand values just stand out in every aspect of how they deliver the experience, including their commitment to net zero, um, and that every one of these companies, Bob, I might say, just as an ad is what's interesting is, you know, their ESG initiatives, uh, their, their uh, net zero it isn't like a program that the finance team is looking into, like it's core to their business model, like the way they manufacture products, how they reclaim products, how they recycle materials. Uh, it's embedded into their digital first experience. And it's, you know, it's just, you know, important today, right? Absolutely. Uh, no question about that. So, Joe, we've been talking about the book. Tell us a little bit more 
um, about it so our our listeners are enticed to go buy it because I know just listening to you uh, makes me want to buy multiple copies of the book. So, <laughs> so tell us about the book. Well, Bob, from Please. your lips to God's ears, as they say. <laughs> um, well, there's three parts to it. One is I, I begin by talking about what I call the three C's, which is the impact that's that's kind of driving these changes in terms of culture, competition, et cetera, and the convergence of five technologies from um, you know the emergence of six uh, of uh, edge-based computing with machine learning and AI, et cetera. You know, one fact I learned from my colleagues in the telecom industry that. Uh, and often people don't realize how much faster 6G will be over 5G when it's fully operational. Now it's it's a it's it's a different transition um, to 6G than from 5G because there's almost like broadband design infrastructure that'll change with that. So it'll be incremental, is what I'm told. It won't be like you turn on your phone and suddenly you're on a 6G network. 5G will improve and then eventually it'll move to 6G. But but 6G fully operational will be like 30 to 50 times faster than 5G. I mean, think about that for a second, Bob. I mean, think about your Wi-Fi right now running 30 times faster. What does that mean in terms of the kind of immersive experiences that you can design, right? So the first piece kind of talks about these kind of uh, important trends and what it means for design. And then the second are the seven design principles from achieving emotional peaks across channels, finishing strong, through to um, linking digital assets to leverage value over costs with a great example from, from Amazon retail around that. And then the third section is a playbook. So I thought it would be important to provide readers with kind of a, a way to uh, take action from what they've learned in the seven strategies and uh, start by solving the right problems, you know, build your business case. This is one of my pet peeves. You know, often I see when we work with clients, it's not that their business case wasn't solid is it didn't exist. Like they just said, well, this is the right thing to do. Let's go get it. And that's, you know, that's a fool's errand because at some point someone's going to say, hey, Bob, can we go through your plan again? What was the incremental margin you were expecting to achieve from this? Because all I'm seeing is costs. <laughs> um, and then we talk about the design process. And then I give a, a walk through an example of how do you execute this to scale across uh, product groups or geographies um, and use and try to include some tools. Sean and I learned that managing the customer experience. People love the tools that, that were in the appendix. So that final chapter includes like real examples of like ideal storyboards and release plans. And um, anyway, so I I hope that kind of gives enough of an overview, Bob. It certainly does, Joe. And and I agree with you 100% that that ability to use those tools, because that that forces us as readers and as practitioners and professionals in the area of customer experience to take action. We don't have any excuse. You give us the information, the background, and then you give us a roadmap and and how to do it. And I think that's so important. The old, the old adage about you're teaching us how to fish, and I think that's really important. Well, I'll share one kind of funny story. We were doing this big design session in Miami with a client, and we had the uh, the, the head of Agile. This company had just transitioned from kind of waterfall method to uh, an Agile team, uh, Agile uh, methodology. And this fellow was new who was leading this group. He'd come into the company. He's only there like a month or two. So, of course, you know, we had IT at the table with us right from the beginning of this whole redesign effort. And one of the project leaders working on one one part of the experience. And uh, one of the managers turned to this person and said, listen, I I realize you we've done this work based on the data. We feel like we need to change this this part, but it has big IT implications, which obviously you won't be able to change. And he looked her straight in the eye and he said, no. He goes, well, tell me, like, what is it? He said, we're here because, you know, we're 
don't think of it as as this old put in your 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 ticket request and we'll get to it in six months. We are going to test new code, release it to customers, get their feedback, test and learn and improve it. So if you've got a change here, we want that change. And Bob, I tell you that story because I think this is a transition that needs to happen in more and more organizations. Like this is the detail of the work. Um, So this is when you start to see real change happening, when conversations that were kind of assumptions about the old legacy culture uh, that I, I wouldn't even think of challenging suddenly get disrupted um, with something like Agile. And that's when you see a real, real progress getting made in these companies. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Joe, we used to call that a burning platform, that mm. change came from burning platforms. You know, the COVID, the pandemic, some would argue was a burning platform that caused companies, forced companies to change. It, do you think that's applicable here in, in what you were just talking about? Does that help companies make changes? Yeah, 100%. And in fact, you know, uh, my good friend David Rogers' new book is coming out at the end of the month called The Digital Transformation Roadmap. It builds on his previous book, Mm. uh, The Playbook. He and I co-delivered some leadership programs around his previous book. And this new book really promises uh, to really deliver tremendous value for companies trying to figure that out. And he makes this point that it starts, it must begin with a compelling vision. And, um, and with, you know, that it can't be top down. It has to be organic, uh, and grow from every part of the company. Um, and so, yeah. So building a birding platform, not about digitizing an app, <laughs> but about <laughs> what really is possible to redesign experiences that, um, solve a solve a big problem and B get the right assembly of digital, human, logistical messaging, you know, uh, uh, assets that will exceed those expectations on those key loyalty drivers. That sounds like a great book too, listeners. So stay tuned for that one. Um, wow. I knew this was going to be a fascinating conversation, Joe, and you did not disappoint me. So for that, I am a deeply appreciative, but before we go, where are we headed, Joe? Where is the digital first customer experience headed as you look out a few years from now? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'd say three quick comments. One is, um, so the good news about things like generative AI is it's really going to push organizations to understand how to apply technology in ways we haven't thought of before. At the same time, so there's just no question as, as, as we start to control for, as we described hallucinations, right? When generative AI kind of goes awry, but what companies, I guess people shouldn't look at their personal experience as consumers with like um, chat GPT and, and see that as the corollary to what, you know, enterprise grade machine learning based platforms, you know, driven by AI will be able to do because um, over the next 12, 24, 36 months, we'll see applications for generative AI that will really have a strong impact. And there will be impact, especially on frontline service roles, as you can imagine, right? Because of, of the, the fact that it can create content, okay? But if, if we're much more narrow on those foundation models, like what makes Lemonade, my first example, really powerful, is their AI bot is trained on a very specific domain. Now, when, when she's asked 13 questions, she generates 1,700 data points which is powerful to be able to figure out the right price for you to sell you an insurance policy. So we'll see more examples of that. At the same time, I always say never, 
never think digital first means people second, as I said before, because the thing that people have is that other version of AI called actual intelligence. So we will see that, but I think a human-centered design has never been more important in digital first companies. It just won't always be delivered by humans, if that makes sense. Um, the second thing is, you know, I have another business working in the ocean tech sector, Bob, called Blue Movement, and we're applying machine learning to um, digital twinning. Uh, we actually won, we didn't win, we were nominated for an Urshop Prize. So if we win, <laughs> I get to go to Singapore, I'll be Prince William. <laughs> we'll see. Fingers crossed on that. But the point is, digital twinning is really going to expand from manufacturing, which is it, pretty robust right now for companies like BMW, into things like medicine. So Bob, imagine a doctor might have a digital twin of Bob and be able to test, you know, um, a medication uh, on your digital twin before he or she prescribes it to you. So that's possible, right? That's mm-hmm. that's where this is going. And then the third thing I think is, and this is out there, but, you know, once we start to see this convergence of technologies like edge-based computing and generative AI and machine learning with um, 6G, with application networks, et cetera, you know, what we will design in the future, especially for retail, will be very different. So you can think of things like um, optical holographic capabilities delivered, you know, on a surface-based device. You might be able to actually experience your retail experience in your living room before you visit the store. So there's a lot that will happen. I mean, honestly, if you're in the CX business right now, it is just, you know, I just think the most exciting time uh, to be doing the kind of work you and I do, Bob. Mm. Thank you for that, Joe. I think I think it's fascinating to see what the future is going to hold and the fact that it is kind of on this accelerated pace, uh, like you just talked about with with 40 or 50 times faster Internet connections. I, you know, it, it's just accelerating at such a pace. It's, sometimes it's difficult to keep up with. Uh, this has been a great conversation, Joe. Um, listeners, um, Joe Wheeler, author of the Digital First Customer Experience. Joe, uh, obviously our listeners can buy the book, but how else can they connect with you and and follow the many things that you're doing um, and writing and so forth? Is it best through LinkedIn? Yeah, connect through LinkedIn. Um, uh, you visit our website at cxdigital.ai, uh, not .com, um, or joewheeler.co, uh, and happy to connect with folks but uh, and and Bob, keep a keep a lookout for my next digital first question. They get harder every week. <laughs> oh gosh, yes, I will do that as well. That, that and listeners, that's a great a great way reason to link in with Joe for sure. Um, Joe, thank you very much for your time today. We've really appreciated the conversation. Thanks, Bob. Real pleasure. And listeners, this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with your networks. And as always, stay tuned for more fascinating guests on our podcast as part of the CXFM Radio Network. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.